Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. And that's Don't forget, in this episode, I might swear, Lucy might cry, and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Labelled Podcast. I am Lucy, and I'm here with my very good friend, Alice, uh, for another episode. Hello, Alice. Do you think that our listeners sit there at home and mouth along to welcome to another brand new episode of the Label Podcast? Because Probably. Because always another brand new episode. If it's not a brand new episode, it's a very special episode. It's a very special, yeah. If it's not, if it's not new, it's special. Um, they probably <laughs> sing the theme tune and then mouth that bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how are you? All right? I'm not too bad. Good. Thank you. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Yes, I had a very, uh, very lazy morning this morning, partly because uh, Bertie the bulldog decided to get in bed with me, which is fine. He does it occasionally, and he like will go, lie down and go to sleep. However, he was wrapped around my stomach this morning, and I couldn't shift him for about twenty-five minutes. So, so you yes. couldn't get up even if you wanted to. <laughs> no, because he, he's very heavy. So, um, mm. but I did eventually manage to prize him out off me <laughs> and out of bed. So yes, I had to have a very enforced lazy morning, but I'm fine, thank you. Well, it's it look it's really sunny and nice out. I feel like it is it is officially spring, which is. You, nice. Are you calling it? You're still calling it officially spring now, are we? I think so. Okay. It looks nice out. So I'm, I haven't <laughs> actually been out there. No. Um. But it it may it looks like it's spring. Yeah, I think it might, it might look. It, we're going through that stage, isn't it, where you sit by the window, you think, oh, it's nice and warm, and then you go outside, and you're like, no, it's not freezing. Still yeah. need my coat on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. So we have a guest with us today, listeners. Uh, our guest today uh, is Rosemary, who um, has been very patient with us. Mm. Um, I think I said this about another recent episode, somebody who approached us about coming on and we somehow managed to lose them completely within the depths of our emails. Yes. Um, and so Rosemary's been very patient for about a year waiting to come on with yes. us. Thank you very um, much for waiting, Rosemary. Yeah, I'm used to it. I'm big part of the neurodiversity community stuff and some I'm used to having to do lots of follow-up <laughs> thank you we, we do yes um, would you like to introduce yourself Rosemary tell our listeners a little bit about you yeah so um I'm Rosemary and I am a freelance writer editor public speaker and uh typically that involves um focusing on topics like neurodiversity and disability and uh, I also am the author of a book called Stumbling Through Space and Time, Living Life with Dyspraxia. And I'm on the board of trustees of a charity called Dyspraxic Me, which uh, supports dyspraxic young people. That's interesting. That's dyspraxia great. is um, not, I don't think, one that we've had anybody sort of talk no, specifically about before. No, so. that's, that's definitely something I thought of. Um, and I, I imagine... Rosemary, I don't know the statistics, 
necessarily but i imagine it affects more people than you would think it affects does it dyspraxia yeah the problem is it's very underdiagnosed. so mm-hmm. um especially amongst women uh it a lot of the diagnosis criteria were designed for like a lot of like straight white male guys so mm-hmm. oh. that's such a shock with with neurodiversity it's you know it's I am being sarcastic. That is, that is <laughs> the the absolute norm for ADHD diagnosis, autism diagnosis, Tourette's diagnosis. It's, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so do, yeah, do you have? Yeah, I take it you have dyspraxia, don't you? Then? Yeah, yes. yeah. I forgot to mention that earlier. Yeah. But yeah, I was diagnosed really, really young. I was only four, and they started to pick up on what's called hypotonia, like more mm-hmm. muscular based uh, issues with relaxing your muscles. Uh, it, it gets stuck in that mode and also like sensory issues a little later later on as well yeah yeah and have you found that that um your dyspraxia has has sort of either got worse or improved over you know as you've grown into adulthood or is it has it sort of stayed the same you know what kind of coping mechanisms have you got to sort of combat your dyspraxia so that it makes life a little bit easier for you is there anything that can make it easier for you yeah uh well as i've gotten older i mean i i definitely have coping mechanisms a big part of what comes with it is uh motor skills issues and uh at least i can figure out some basics of tying my shoelaces and things like that um but yeah i mean if i have any rush around I have to rush anywhere or things like that, or I'm under some level of stress, then it all kind of reverses back to almost childhood in a way, uh, when I was just figuring it all out. Um, and also too, I mean, I've all, I find the idea of remote working really appealing. Um, I find this has been the best choice I've made my whole life because at least I can control my environment. And that was really the hard part of taking on more quote unquote regular jobs. Yeah. Mm. See, I find, I find talking to people with dyspraxia for me, because I have cerebral palsy, I find it fascinating because a lot of what people with dyspraxia struggle with, I struggle a lot with. So my fine motor skills are they've been non-existent from when I was a was a child and I've never had a brain scan to see exactly which part of my brain is affected by the cerebral palsy I think I know so like my number skills Alice will tell you my numbers skills are awful Mm. Um, my sometimes my spelling is awful again Alice will tell you she's like why have you got an extra you in the middle of that word that doesn't need it Uh, but also on on a sort of like doing things by myself level my fingers don't necessarily behave in the way that I would like them to. And I drop a lot of things. The amount of food I drop down myself is embarrassing. Um, and I can't do things, fiddly little jobs like tying shoelaces and things. And it always makes me wonder whether I have sort of an element of, or, you know, a little little bit of dyspraxia to some degree because I or whether that's just cerebral palsy being cerebral palsy or whether it's a bit of both it fascinates me really because when I speak to people who have dyspraxia I'm like yeah I'm I'm a bit like that too my Mm. my fingers are like cooked spaghetti when I'm trying to do some like so I can't sew or do knitting or anything like that because my fingers just get in a get in a knot and it's it frustrates me so I don't bother 
but I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's the same with uh, me because uh, I remember uh, when I was writing the book, uh, I read a lot of old doc documents, like medical documents, and mm. uh, it was interesting to learn that that was actually something I was tested before for before they decided that it was dyspraxia and. As I've gotten more involved in the community, I found that like it's quite common for people to have a mix of both. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's something that fascinates me. I do think dyspraxia is one of those things where a lot of people get it as a sort of secondary diagnosis. Yeah, um, like uh, particularly I think neurodiverse people. So you know, you might get an autism diagnosis and a dyspraxia diagnosis. You know, at the same time, mm. I think it is that kind of. I, th I think it's really fascinating that the brain, you know, if the brain works differently in one area, how much that kind of bleeds into other areas yeah. and other things. Yeah, and I suppose it's the same for your CP that, you know, you could well have uh, issues with your hands and stuff because of your CP, but there could also just as easily be a, a dyspraxic element to yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I imagine there are, you know, brain scientists out there who would be get very sort of on their high horse about the distinct difference between the two but yeah. i mean my feelings are that it, it within the the people who actually live in that world and experience it yeah um i do think obviously getting a diagnosis is really important for some people but actually feeling as though you have other people around you who experience the same thing whether they have the same label on or not is i think that's really nice mm. yeah i think that's uh, the same with a lot experience. of neurological things for sure uh they mm. they really have to change how they look at it because there's always a chance of something connecting to something else and uh, mm. yeah if only it was like that but uh yeah you know i didn't really have that great support for a long time early on i i had special education and such but um uh, Canada really, like, still is not really a place that where it's very well known. And uh, I really, like, it was hard to try and get the right support and accommodations and things like that. Did you come up with a, did you come across a lot of people that just sort of said, oh, you're not dyspraxic, you're just clumsy or things like that, you know, because I've heard a lot of people that have dyspraxia, they say, it's not, it's not that I'm just clumsy, it's the way my brain is wired, I'm not, I'm not. Like I, just, I don't just whoops a daisy kind of thing. It's I can't, I can't help I'm not it. paying attention. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Did you get a lot of people that thought you were clumsy and yeah. not paying attention, or yeah. just quirky? Uh, they immediately <laughs> make a weird gendered thing that uh, yes, maybe yeah. I have some quality of someone out of some indie movie, like some sort of pixie dream girl <laughs> thing going on. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. yeah. Just you, you co-starring with Michael Sarah, just being a bit weird, <laughs> listening to like wearing strange boots, listening to people play acoustic guitar. Yeah. It's just Rosemary. <laughs> it's like actually, this is a defined condition and experience. Let's uh, let's not undermine it by saying, oh, she's just Rosemary. She's just a bit quirky. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, half of it could be qualified. I mean, for me, half of my uh, sort of cerebral palsy brain could be qualified as clumsy i mean i have hurt myself in ways that you would never i've sneezed and fallen out of my wheelchair 
and uh, smash my chin on the floor. Had to go down and need to get three stitches in my chin. So, and like, <laughs> I tell people these stories and they like look at me and they're like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. It's, is, it, is it clumsiness? Is it is it my cerebral palsy? Uh, who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I can hurt myself in ways that you think, oh, that's new. Yeah. <laughs> that's new. Well, I've never heard that before. At least it makes life interesting. And... It does. I'm never boring at <laughs> dinner parties. <laughs> never boring at dinner parties. It um it does make me think though about I can remember really in one of our really early episodes when we were doing Autism Awareness Week, Daisy was explaining that um it's really hard to get a diagnosis for autism if you're visually impaired mm. because obviously a lot of the social experiences of you know in in things that I go through as a VI person with uh maybe struggling to recognise other people's social sort of Cues and body language, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not being able to always make eye contact, those sorts of things are things that a lot of autistic people also experience. But I can a hundred percent guarantee that there are VI people who also have autism. Yeah, and you yeah. Just absolutely. Sort of go... <laughs> There's got to be a yeah, lap let's... over somewhere, hasn't there? Like... Yeah, yeah. So, what made you want to um, write a book, Rosemary? Well, for many years, I felt like I had to like be the lecturer and the educator of everyone around me mm -hmm. as I attempted to get the level of support that I needed. And mm -hmm. I tried looking around for books that were on the subject matter as a form of uh, my own sense of support and community. And there really wasn't mm -hmm. much. It was mostly like really academic medical stuff. And uh, really around just before COVID, um, I started writing it uh, sort of end of 2019. And I just wanted to like sit down and write about it and put into words some of the things I've been putting into diary entries for years about like how it was affecting me and getting to know my own brain a little bit better in the hopes that it would help someone else too. I I, I think I that it, that wanting to feel like you're finding other people the voices of other people who have experienced the same thing and rather than feeling like it's all academic clinical professional stuff i think that's a weirdly relates very much to why i wanted to start this podcast yeah. was because it is about like that for me you know this one of the things i found on disability twitter was suddenly going oh shit it's not just me and how nice is it to yeah. feel like it's not just me there is the you know never mind the kind of systemic and environmental isolation of being disabled there is a a kind of social element of it and then being able to be somewhere like disability twitter and go oh it is it isn't just me um mm. that it's so freeing mm. um and i think it's i think it's fantastic that you're kind of actively contributing to that uh, yeah by writing your book yeah yeah and I also as well i think i think being able to put into like you say you know there was no there was no other resource really other than medical sort of jargon and reports and things for your sort of basis of your support but when you've only got that as a starting block 
medical language can be quite frightening i think to somebody who is going through something so with your book you know and the language you use is is i would imagine is a lot more softer and a lot more well this is because of this and this is and it's not as frightening as reading a medical journal about dyspraxia and then you conjuring up all sorts of images and visions in your head of what it's it is like or is going to be like that is going to be so helpful to other people who have dyspraxia and are needing to find that sort of solace in somewhere that doesn't go oh yeah no you need to be scared to death about this they can find your book and go actually it's not you know it's not it's not as scary as as it might seem yeah i mean a lot of the people i talked to who are readers of it were mothers of uh people with dyspraxia and i i was thrilled to see that um they were seeing that there was a hope for the future but also yeah. like i i mean also it related to my own which is great because it was about community for me having that dyspraxia community was life-changing because before that mm. um i had to for many years go get over a lot of self-esteem issues because i didn't really have anything to compare my own experiences to no exactly mm. yeah mm. i can imagine that um you know that it's it's opened so many doors for you in terms of getting support and that comes the sense of community that i think everybody needs i think everybody no matter who you are whether you're disabled or not or from any other minority i think whether you're from a minority or not i think everybody needs that sense of community and support no matter where it's from i think you just need that space to sort of go do you know what this is really terrible can somebody talk to me about it yeah you know and i think sorry i think that um being being the only disabled person in a space whether Ooh. that is your family or the, your school or you know your local neighborhood community whatever i think that if you when you look around and you have difficulties with things and you have experiences that nobody else has it feels like you're the problem yeah it feels like this is because i can't do like my family's not been able to go somewhere because i can't do something or i've just fallen over because of my condition mm -hmm. and it feels very like thinking about what you were saying about self-esteem rosemary is it feels very like there's a lot probably a lot of self-blame and a lot of self-isolating because you just don't feel like there's anybody else around you who who can possibly understand because they cannot relate yeah i think if you don't have a condition that causes you to literally not be able to control the outcome of something your body does mm -hmm. like you know obviously we've got three very different sort of disabilities here but we all have had those experiences of being like i want to do this i cannot do this thing this thing that i am trying to do in this moment is not working because of my condition mm. and i think if you don't ha have that experience it's a really alien concept yeah and so i think you can't help but start to go well this is this is because i'm different this must be i'm the yeah. i'm the bad thing exactly and that's where internalized ableism starts because 
you know, or it's like a, it's a drip, 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 isn't it? Of well, I can't do this because of this, and that, that's because of me. That's my doing. It's mm. I am the problem, and that mm. escalates into a big snowball. And then before you know it, you hate yourself, yeah. and mm. you become ashamed of your disability. And it shouldn't be that you, you are ever ashamed of how you are, uh, how your body is, because you know it's. It's the only one you've got. Yeah, you've it's the only one you've got. You've got, you've got, you've got, you yeah, you've got to learn to either love it or live with it, haven't you, really? Like, yeah. I know there's areas of my body where you go, okay, I really don't like that and I don't like this. But I, I, it's no point whinging about it. got to get on with it, haven't you, really, kind of thing. But, um, yeah. I found that even with, uh, I joined a dyspraxic cardio fitness online thing um, about a year ago. And even the instructors, dyspraxic and fitness was always group fitness was always such a hard thing for me because yeah, everyone else imagine. would learn in a different way than I would. And, and someone would say, go to the left or stretch your body that way. And it just wouldn't happen with me. And it was amazing to be in a space where uh, I could do that. And it'd be celebrated and everyone next thing you know would be having a good giggle about it and then go back to it and keep doing the workout. Yeah, I know. Because, I mean, that is the thing, isn't it? I think when you are with sort of people who don't have the same issues as you, so, you know, you go to a fitness class and you're the only dyspraxic in the room, it can be quite startling how how your dyspraxia affects you might not think it affects you that badly but when you're stood next to somebody who hasn't got dyspraxia and is managing to complete the whole class absolutely fine and only like a few beads of sweat you think to, you know you're there kind of not knowing which way is left and which way is right it can be quite um quite startling i imagine and quite that can be often i would imagine i don't know does it does it make you feel quite like oh is it is it like a, a an unhappy reminder that you know you've got dyspraxia and these difficulties mm-hmm. or yeah it's kind of like yeah and that and that you don't have control and that can be quite frightening and uh yeah that's why you need someone to say it's okay yeah it's like somebody pointing out to me oh you can't you know you can't do that because you can't walk every five minutes like I don't need telling that I can't walk. I know I don't need somebody who can walk telling me I can't. Yeah, because it's just, it's just yeah. depressing, isn't it? Really. Yeah. I used to work out with when I was uh, having a go at my PhD before I dropped out. Myself and one of my um, friends would go to the gym uh. Uh, a couple times a week, and we were like, okay, let's also do a class right. on top of this. And in the gym. I was faster than her. I was stronger than her. I was all of the things. Yeah. And then in the class, he, the guy was like, do this. And I was like, do what? Because <laughs> like, I can't just, see it. just could not see him. No. Yeah, and I couldn't. And, you know, despite the fact that I said to him, like, I stood at the front and I said, can you explain what you're doing as you're doing it? Like explaining you'll raise your arm up and then move your shoulder so that your elbow is behind you and then you'll put your arm like that series of instructions yeah. my brain could just not follow it without no. seeing it no exactly yeah and uh and it was <laughs> i it was a real like uh i mean 
probably checked my smugness quite a lot because like when we'd been at normal gym sessions they'd be like oh how was you know how you feeling she'd be like fucking knacking i was like i'm all right yeah i could could (laughs) i'm gonna go for coffee and a swim (laughs) i've had that with running for sure uh really for years my only fitness activity was just going for a good jog and it really wasn't Mm. until quite recently that i got out of that comfort zone Mm. yeah yeah it is i think it's um and i think that's the thing i start i tried swimming a little while ago with um two other vi people and even though there were sighted swimmers around us and stuff like that that just having somebody else there who who knew what problems i might have and could talk to me about it and we could like troubleshoot it together and and just knowing that there was somebody else there so that if slash when i inevitably swam into the wall because i hit it sooner than i was expecting she would be like oh yeah no i did that like two lengths ago don't worry <laughs> yeah it's fine <laughs> it's just like, happened it's to fine. me too it's all right don't feel embarrassed yeah, yeah. it's their fault for putting the wall there don't worry about it exactly <laughs> exactly Lucy. you see when they i could <laughs> just fill the world with water i could swim everywhere exactly make it so much easier um <laughs> i when i you see where i when i go swimming right i have to concentrate so hard on the fact that just breathe just breathe because as soon as i think about the fact that i'm swimming my legs go no what are you doing we don't do this we don't what is this we don't do this. and we'll try and drown me because my legs just decide to oh well let me help you and they are useless so because they start to kick i drown so and i spend my time and i swim 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 and i'm thinking just it's that meditation because if i don't do that i have uh, the thoughts start creeping into my head. That's why I like swimming, uh, yeah. like running, because I have to concentrate on what I'm doing, otherwise I fall down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I just, I, it's a, it is meditative. Meditative. So I'm swimming, swimming, swimming. Off. Yeah, I'm swimming, yeah. swimming, swimming. I'm like, don't, I'm like, right, don't think about anything else other than breathing. That's all you've got to do. Swim, swim, swim. And then I get to about, like, one more swim away f- from the wall, and my brain knows this. And we'll go, it's all right now, you've stopped swimming. So I drown. <laughs> I'm like, where's the wall? Where's the wall? Because I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Um, yeah, my mum's like, have you seen yourself? You look ridiculous. Because it's like, nice, calm, calm, calm. And then I get about a foot away. It's like, no, <laughs> drowning. I can relate yeah. to that because with both swimming and running, I, that's, I can't deal with crowds. If I have to do it amongst crowds, I... then i the focus breaks and i'm like oh shit how do i get around (laughs) these five people (laughs) yeah my brain will panic and go oh yeah (laughs) susan move because you're gonna get wet (laughs) it's it's uh it's like your brain just completely gives up on all sensible sort of it just immediately just goes fuck shit oh my god why don't people stand there in the swimming pool having a chat like they haven't seen each other for two weeks and what's ridiculous is that if you if your brain could just focus for half a second, then you could just hold on to the wall and be fine. Yeah. But instead you're panic! Everybody panic! I'm gonna drown, I'm gonna drown, I'm gonna like behaving <laughs> like Rose on the calm, Titanic. You're just taking all the time in the world and yeah. such a contrast. Oh Sandra, yeah. it is nice to see her last time I saw you're a waitrose, that kind of thing. You know, like <laughs> for God's sake, will you move? I'm trying to swim here <laughs> but yeah i it is it is weird how my brain just goes no <laughs> you 
<laughs> There's the wall. You're all right now. <laughs> Not there yet. So, Rosemary, you said that you were diagnosed at, at quite a young age, and then obviously you are no longer a child. Um, what was that? What was it sort of like growing up? You know, with your diagnosis, I assume there weren't many other people around you who had the same diagnosis and experiences. Yeah, I mean, I had neurodivergent friends. Some of my friends had had like ADHD or autism or something like that, but it wasn't well known. I mean, I didn't really know another dyspraxic person until like roughly a few years ago. And mm. yeah, so really, um, I was put into a lot of boxes of things that people assume I would do based on things that are neurodivergence, but they're not the same thing. But mm. I did get some level of support. I had special education in like through a lot of school. Um, but once I went to university, I was much more on my own with it. And that's when I realized that I had got a little too used to a lot of hand holding with figuring out how to get that support and what I needed in that. And that was really overwhelming. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the experience of a, a lot, even like the general population moving out into that university space, mm. people suddenly go like, there's no mums or teachers who will help me pick this up. And I think that that's fine. And that's all part of growing up. But I think the, the bit that's really difficult is that the processes for getting support and things like that are all so different everywhere that you can't just be like, okay, I, I don't, I need help with this so I go here and and I ask for this and this person does this it's uh you know you're very much kind of in a in a wilderness of having to work out what's the right route and you know what's what's safe to do and what's actually going to work yeah um, I, I find that too I've um, much more recently some of my work has involved uh educating uh like companies on how to figure out accommodations and support. And it's kind of worrying how rare that is that uh, people know that like people who are disabled just in general um, often don't always 100% know what is the right thing for that particular context to get the support that you need. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, I do uh, a lot of professionals training in my my current job about um supporting uh neurodiverse people um people with learning disabilities uh in healthcare settings and the thing that i say to people is generally you can just ask because most people know what they need mm. but when it comes to very specific situations like you need a level of guidance with from somebody who understands the other side of it and the other side of that process and you can tell a person like i have trouble reading uh you know long words or i ha need large print or i can't use stairs but there are other like when you've got no idea what's on the other side of the door like lucy might not think that she needs to tell people that she needs a hoist in and out of a swimming pool she doesn't know that there's a swimming pool on the other side of the door you know yeah, mm. yeah. um and i think that that's the that is the situation that a lot of disabled people find themselves in is that they'll have the confidence to be like, well, this is what I need this. Is, and, you know, to tell people, mm. and then they'll find themselves in a situation that is so unexpected that you're like, well, how was I supposed to know that 
I needed to tell you that I needed this beforehand. Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, it's often as well the people's reaction to you. So you go, well, I didn't mm-hmm. know. Well, you should have done. Well, how how yeah. am, I, oh, have I, am I a mind reader? Do I need a crystal ball? What, what you know. That's that where the education part needs to come in. So yeah, exactly. Much more. Yeah, completely, completely. Um, yeah. Yeah, one of the things I say in my training is that in the UK, reasonable adjustments are anticipatory. Yes. So they should anticipate the needs of disabled people before the disabled people turn up and go, I need this. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I need a desk that moves on, you know, up and down. Well, we can't do that. (laughs) And Yeah, it's like, um, it's that, you know, you shouldn't wait for a disabled person to turn up to say, I need a ramp to put a ramp in. Yeah, because that takes time. Exactly, exactly. Um, And I think a huge part of that, of people recognising what that means, is that they need to be transparent about their processes and their systems so that before we turn up, we can go, oh, well, actually, I might need this to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, But people have a weird, like, oh, but this is, this is, our business like we can't tell you about how how it works mm. on the inside because it's our business because it's a need to know basis and you don't need to know <laughs> why do you need to know you're disabled why do you need to know <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's a very very alien to me i yeah. think i just like i just fucking tell 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 people everything i would rather have too much information than not enough information yeah i think sometimes as well people who work in businesses and things they they think that we want to know like the ins and outs of fire regulation safety and stuff. And no. Like, no. Absolutely it's just, not. I just want to come into your shop, buy something and leave again. I don't need to know who is your fire marshal and how long they've been in the role and all this business. And you think you either go that I tend to see I tend to see it where they either go one way or the other. So They'll either go, well, we're doing this, 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 and they go to the nth degree, which is very nice, but I really don't need to know about Susan, the fire marshal. Or they don't tell you anything. They just blame me. It's my fault. How dare you want a cup of coffee? Um, It's weird. People are just weird, aren't they? Yeah, (laughs) they are. And how can you get that sense of, like, equality in any setting when, when it isn't something where... You're talking to each other and listening to each other to yeah achieve. exactly and you've got to believe the person that's telling you about their experience you can't go well that, that didn't happen because of we all have different priorities not just within the disabled community where obviously we all have different needs but like across the board I, I, where my office is is a listed building mm. and so we had somebody um, uh, i've got a colleague who's uses mobility aids and uh, we had somebody from the trust that manages the listed building come in to be like oh can you not leave this back gate open during the day because it gives access to the street so that other people come into like the fancy medieval courtyard and like just leave their trash and stuff like this okay and we were like and she was like um and we said "Well, well we've been told we need to have that gate open for as a fire exit and she was like well there's this proper fire exit here and then my colleague who's got mobility aid was like yes but i can't get out that fire exit because i can't get over the step no that you need to get out of it so we need to have this door open and it's just a 
you know, for the person from the trust, she was like, my precious courtyard, people yeah. are leaving crisp packets and beer cans in it. Don't let the plebs in. Like, Don't let the plebs yeah. in. And then, but then we're like, our precious disabled bodies, we don't want them to burn. <laughs> yeah, and you want to be able to leave the building. You want to be able to enter the building. And they're not. You want to leave and enter a building, whether it's a fire exit or not, with a, with a limited amount of faff, really, don't you? Yeah. You don't, want to cause, yeah. you don't want to cause a scene. I went to a pub last weekend and the, the, the seating in the pub is not the best. Uh, like the, up at the top there's like seating but some of our really high stalls and really high tables hate them why have you got them there like who is sitting on the giant stool nobody needs it move they're them they're not comfortable they're not like, they look wobbly like you're wobbling everywhere stop it just get off them i just i feel like like it put weirdly makes my weight my the weight of my legs dangle because <laughs> your feet don't touch the ground no they look so weird i just feel like you yeah they're not they're no. not comfortable you're not missing anything and i'm thinking just put a normal table it's fine everybody everybody can sit at a normal table anyway all the tables were full and my sister had gone down the bottom to get a table which is fine but there is a set of steps and i was like the steps there's a what there's a like a lift thing on the side of the wall that like concertina's away and I was like, oh, I'll just get on the lifting. So I went to the bar and I said, can I get on the lift please? Because I need to go and sit with my sister. And she went, yeah, I'll just get the person with the key. I said, person? One. One, one person with the key. I was like, what happens? I said to the pers person with the key, what happens when you're not here? And she goes, a bit stuffed then, aren't they? Like this. But then she put the key in, turned it, turned it, turned it, nothing happened. She pushed the button. Nothing happened because it wasn't switched on because she turned the key and nothing had happened. And I'm sat there and I'm thinking to myself, all I want to do is sit down at the table and eat my dinner. And it took about 20 minutes to get down this set of steps, like about six steps. And I'm, I yeah. said to my friend who was waiting at the bottom, um, I like to do things without causing a fuss, you know, <laughs> like, like the I'm thinking just get rid of the high tables. This would have caused no faff whatsoever. It's. It definitely feels like it's one of, like, like we don't as disabled people. I don't think we want to cause a scene. No, never. But we have to cause a scene sometimes <laughs> because, because like while the person's standing there trying to turn the thing off and on, and then I imagine when it finally turns on, the thing's really noisy. Yeah, the whole pub is looking jerky, at you. and because and and everybody's you, looking at me because nobody's ever seen this lift working ever. And you, all you want to do is go and have a dinner and drink in the pub. Like it's <laughs> yeah. Then you're not, just centered out. Don't... Your day's ruined. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And I do sit there sometimes, and I think, don't make me do the thing that I've got to do to kick off to get down here, please. Because I don't, I don't want to do it. You don't want it. Let's can we not just find an easier solution? But we, I got there in the end. It was fine. I had a lovely meal and came back up again. But it, and there was this, there was this element of. This thing clearly hasn't worked in a very long time because the, the key isn't working and the buttons aren't working. Uh, is this safe for me to use? Do you know? Because nobody's used yeah. it in, uh, like, I don't know how long. It was fine. It was fine. But there is that always nerve-wracking moment of, is this going to break with me on it? And then we have to, like, call ITV Central because I'm stuck, <laughs> stuck on a oh, lift. No. <laughs> Call the somebody call call a press conference, please. I'm stuck on this thing. <laughs> you you know I like to do that, Alice. <laughs> but yeah, it's um 
and I, I think I don't. It is am it is amazing when you 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 consider what non-disabled people worry about over the stuff that we worry about, like you saying she wanted to don't leave that open. Yeah, yeah. Well, if if we don't if we don't leave that open, my <laughs> colleague here will burn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, what's yeah. the what's the point if there isn't like an opportunity to have a sense of dignity? <laughs> you yeah, know? Mm. exactly. I think that's you know. That is all anybody wants, isn't it? A sense of dignity and not to have to look like a hot, sweaty mess when you arrive at places. You just want to get in, get out and do it nicely and go in the door you're supposed to go in, not through the back kitchen or whatever, or, you know, crawl through a hole in the <laughs> in the wall. Yeah, I've even I've even found that my, my spouse gets around with um, a cane. And so I've, I've been in a lot of frustrating situations in um, mm. airports where uh, they'll ask me what he needs, not not like ask him. And he's mm. meanwhile, he's someone who's worked in public health for many years and uh, <laughs> has had all his diagnoses for many years. So he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, go on, Alice, what were we going to say? Yeah, it's that that made me think um, of a story that somebody at work shared with me. She's a young woman with a learning disability who got was really really offended when she got off a plane in Spain. Um, she has a learning disability, but no other uh, health conditions, so she's independently mobile. She's actually she she is very independent. She's very um, strong minded. Uh, yeah. You know, she will tell you what she wants. And she got off a plane. Uh, when she went on holiday with her family and was had be, you know they they'd obviously said we have somebody with a disability on the plane mm. and nobody had given any further information to the people at the airport in Spain so when she got there they turned up with a wheelchair and she was like I don't I don't need a wheelchair Yes. Like, I just need you to know that when it comes to like passport checks and stuff, I might need a bit of extra time and I might need someone to help me fill out the like Form. declaration forms yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. She was so offended that they were like, sit in the chair. Because that was because they, they brought the chair and they were like, you have to sit in it. And she was like, I don't need it. They were like, but you have to sit in it. Like, our regulations say we've got a disabled person, so you have to sit in the chair. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, that's, and that's... she was. Yeah. It's just, it's, it is just the seeming inability to, to listen to people about what they, their experiences and what they need. And I think a lot of disabled people, they're, they're, we've said this, I've said this before, you know, on the show, that a lot of disabled people are great problem solvers. We have to problem solve constantly, all day, every day, without even thinking about the fact that we're problem solving. We're, we're doing it without even acknowledging we're doing it. It's got to that stage. You know, if you just listen to a disabled person who can tell you how to solve this issue that you yeah. are facing and go, okay, we'll try that. Because at least if you try it and then realise, no, that doesn't work either. What what have you lost? You know, you haven't lost anything, have you? Yeah. Instead of asking the person that's with them. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> You know, actually speak to the person and ask them what they want. Because, mm. like, you know, as much as he's your spouse, they don't know anything about your relationship. Exactly. He may have, you know, very personal feelings and things that he chooses not to share with you. And that's entirely up to him. It's really, it's 
offensive to him that they would just not consider asking him. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 my mind boggles. I know. I don't think I a lot of, there's not enough training, I find. I think that's part of the problem where, where really the surface thing of, of how to support people is like always get a wheelchair. But yeah, I don't, yeah, like you said, people don't listen enough. No. Mm. I but mm. I, I find it, <laughs> I make it a little game with myself now because often if I am in a situation where, the person who I need to speak to is refusing to speak to me directly. They will not look at me directly in the face because if they don't look at me directly, then in their head I don't exist because they're not looking at me. Can't see you, I'm not looking at you. Can't see you, I'm not looking at you. So I make it a game of you will you will look at me and you will speak to me. Um, yeah. I kind of go, hi, how are you? Like they'll, they'll talk to my mom or whoever I'm with. Hi, how are you? Like And talk directly to them. But they do this thing where they're just constantly moving their head like they're not looking directly <laughs> in my island. And I'm like, you're going to bloody look at me. Yeah. Look at me. Um, it's just, you just think, do you realise how, stu how stupid you look? Yeah, I think that's, that's the thing. If people just, it's, they've got no idea of, like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're offended and we're angry, but we're also laughing at you. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you just, you are, you are the ones being weird and difficult. Out of the what two, out of, yeah, you think out of the two of us, out of the two of us in this situation here, you are the one that looks like you have the problem, not me. <laughs> yeah, it's like so the the woman from the trust who came to kick off about the fire exit door, um, like instead of saying, "Well, why have you been told to use that fire exit instead of this fire door?" Yeah, like she had, her immediate thing was justifying why we shouldn't be doing it, and it's just like so. So she immediately then was like, "Well, you." my precious courtyard and you know <laughs> a place of historical significance and then we're like yes but and then she looks like a twat <laughs> yeah because she's just stood there it's just like you know if you'd taken half a second to instead of being like well this this is the thing this is my thing and this is the most important thing yeah to just question why something's being done a certain way then you would you'd save yourself the embarrassment of having to go oh oh well well in that case oh we'll, we'll need to we'll need to come up with a different solution um and their solution was that they would put a keypad on the fire exit gate so that we could keep the courtyard gate closed but we could still get out with the use of a keypad and i was like when there's a fire they expected you to input a key code oh. i was just like I'm going to find that really easy to do. Yeah. Awesome. What's, but, what's the uh, number? 999. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not... 999. It's parents talking for kids, assuming that the kids cannot, like, speak for themselves yeah. and their own experiences. Yeah. That's where when I joined this charity, I had to be really careful at the events because in the early ones, there was a lot of parents. And there was one particular woman that uh, she talked for a kid her kid was around 13 he was definitely verbal so fine and and the whole time she would say she would speak as if he couldn't speak and he was right there mm. and she would say yeah my kid feels this way about this situation and i made a huge point of um 
always like finding a way to talk directly to the kid and be like, oh, what do you think about this? Oh, how's your day going? Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing a piece of work at the moment where, and we're, it's really interesting. So um, on my team, there are a bunch, we've got a variety of different people. We've got people with um, physical and sensory disabilities. We've got people with neurodiversities and we've got non-disabled people and we've got parents of disabled people. And one of the things that we're doing at the moment is we're working on a sort of a workshop to do with young people about speaking up for themselves mm. and the parents of disabled people on my team immediately were going well you can't stand there and tell them all about their rights to be able to have what they want and speak up for things when these are all vulnerable people and they'll start making decisions oh, that are bad man. for them and, and I was like yeah but that's their right yeah like <laughs> We we all have the rights to right to make our own bad choices. It's funny. And... Me, me and my mom were talking about this very issue the, yesterday. It was Friday in the car. We were going mm. somewhere, and because we, we were just generally having a general chit chat about stuff, and um, oh, I said, you know, sometimes very well-meaning parents sort of overdo it a little bit when they get a bit older because they you know especially kids with disabilities when they're small and they're at home and then they go to school and they're young age at school yes you can understand them being sort of motherly and a bit more protective because they've got the best interest but when they get to like 13 14 15 and they've got a mind of their own there has got to be a bit of okay i've got to let i've got to let little jimmy like make his own choices in the world because otherwise how do you learn yeah, yeah. exactly i think it, it must be really really hard for those parents when they have got children who perhaps don't think or learn in the way that you know non-disabled children do and so they are very worried about them being exploited yeah. or something bad happening i absolutely understand why you must that must be terrifying totally to be like what well why you know i i am not gonna let my child go out and you know go to mcdonald's on their own and things like that because what if something terrible happens yeah but then what if something terrible doesn't happen yeah exactly. what if they just show up like, and have what, a great time yeah exactly yeah and it's just it just i it's so i'm not i i cannot imagine what that feeling must be like for parents but i know exactly what that feeling is like for the, the individual yeah and i think that the fear that the parent is having is is nothing compared to the frustration and the isolation that the disabled person feels when they don't have a voice yeah oh, totally because if your parents won't let you have a voice yeah. then what chance have you got and then that that again then leads to frustration because you're not being heard you're not being seen as ordinary it, it exacerbates again to the internalized ableism because mm. you, they because you think that they think you can't so therefore everybody thinks they can't do anything and then they don't they're not achieving their potential are they you know no. yeah it's um it is i mean my i always say my mom and my dad they have never been that kind of overprotective parent like that that stops you doing things like you know 
my mum has always encouraged me to to go out there and do stuff but at the same time I know there are, are occasions where <coughs> my mum she, she goes into this like if I go out on an evening and I'm not going out with my mum which does happen occasionally not very often but it does happen so I'm going out with my sister for instance not my mum so she's a family member I, was gonna say, who... I feel like your mum would not be okay with you going to the pub without her <laughs> yeah, not for the reasons you might think just so no, that, exactly. that, yeah where's my pint like, uh, exactly i'm not missing out on the pub excuse me i'm coming yeah but <laughs> but my mom does tend to she's like she's like have you got this have you got that have you got this what happens when you get there Did, what what time you be back and it's like i've never left the house before have you got have you got your debit card yes mom i've always got my debit card <laughs> of course i've got my debit card. but i don't so you just go just just fine everything's gonna be fine i'm with my sister it's not like i'm with a stranger stranger danger um but bless her so but that is but that is just a general mom thing i think that uh, and again it is the kind of oh she's coming without me rather than a... I, think, I think there is it must be like tenfold for parents of disabled children totally. than it is for you know parents of non-disabled children yeah. and i think that's why i think the the, the things that you're doing rosemary where you're you know you're working with this charity and you're you're writing your book it's i think people feel more confident I, I sort of said this at the beginning people feel more confident speaking up about their experiences if they've seen other people already speaking up about having had the same experience mm. yeah it makes it easier. you're the person that's going to open the floodgate yeah because there's an example to compare it to and, and that's yeah. wonderful mm. and that's important and that enables people to go towards whatever feels natural to them nice. yeah great stuff yeah no i like that that's a really nice way of phrasing it about what feels natural for yeah. them i like that they can come to their own conclusion can't they of okay maybe i don't feel like such a weirdo anymore and there is stuff out there that you know people out there that are helping people and i could there, there is a way through this that i can navigate now it's the thing you should be very proud of rosemary yeah what would you say in the the work that you're doing with kind of parents and and young people what would you say is the thing that is the most kind of common or or challenging experience for uh dyspraxic people um really just the misconception that uh somehow it's a a barrier to success as harsh as that sounds and because um, mm. people don't know if they're going to get the right support and work they, they don't know if uh, people are going to understand the condition itself and I think that's where the parent part gets quite concerned mm. do you think diagnosis of dyspraxia are getting more common these days now that you know neurodiversity I think that people are much more aware aren't they of neuro neurodiversities as a whole do you think that, that has improved the diagnosis diagnosis of dyspraxia in general um, a little so bit that, yeah i mean bit. it's not quite there with perfect yet but yeah no at least uh there's starting to be people that are realizing that maybe there's something like that going on and yeah that's got to be helpful, hasn't it? Really, it's got yeah. to be. That's got to give you. That's got to give you hope for the future for other people. Yeah, I mean, especially because I started with there not really being much around, and and mm. if I can be one to change that, that's wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah, it feels like 
like when when we were younger people were starting to go oh dyslexia is a thing yeah and sort of beginning to recognize that and it almost feels like people started going oh, okay i understand what dyslexia is and then people started going oh i think i understand what dyscalculia is, is yeah. and uh, it's like we're now people are starting to go oh i think i actually understand what dyspraxia is and what it means now rather than i'm just it being... yeah 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 it feels like one of those things that like it's people's awareness is increasing so. absolutely this has been really interesting rosemary was there anything um else in particular that you kind of wanted to share with us um you know about your your writing and your your process of writing your book or the work that you're doing yeah you know in terms of the book process um i really just worked off a lot of medical documentation i worked off of i had a really good mentor that helped me keep focus on what topics were the most important and it really opened up the floodgates for uh having a better relationship with people who were part of the process back in the day mm -hmm. like my parents for example and yeah. it's really started to cross over in my other work where um i'm starting to see where the future is heading in terms of it's amazing for example to be able to go into more like corporate settings and someone wanting to hear more about this and to see some level mm. of value in that or to needing a resource on that or something like mm. that. So what's next for you then, Rosemary? Is it another book or is it, is it, what is it? Is it more talks? Is it more working with young people? Tell uh, me a bit about what's next for you. Well, I'm shopping around book two. I don't have a home for book two yet, but um, mm -hmm. I, I've been doing some uh, freelance work on a bit of freelance journalism and working with some uh, more client corporate clients as well. And I'm hoping to do more talks this year because the talks have been really enlightening and interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, well, if this podcast episode is anything to go by, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you'll have lots of people banging on the mm. door for a, for a talk from you, Rosemary. So thank you very much for your time today. Yeah where where can people find your book what's your book called we haven't mentioned that yet. oh yeah um, uh, oh no i think you mentioned it at the very beginning of the show so stumbling through space and time living life with dyspraxia and basically wherever uh you wherever your nearest bookstore is or online retailers <laughs> like think... amazon and etc um yeah and in terms of where you can find me my website is basically my first name and my last name rosemaryrichings.com and i love twitter i'm very addicted to twitter so at rosie <laughs> may r underscore yeah rosie may <laughs> underscore <laughs> r <laughs> yeah <laughs> fabulous well if you go if you can provide us all your links to your book and everything we'll make sure that it's in the show notes for when this episode is out uh on our podcast players and we can include that in your show notes so people can find you easily yeah so they don't have to remember where exactly the underscore is. They can just click on it and they found you. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Rosemary. This has been brilliant. Yes. Um, and thank you all of you out there in listening land for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And uh, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. -bye. Thanks for listening to The Label Podcast. If you like the show, you can rate, review and subscribe and you can follow us on social media at Labeled Pod. This episode was edited by Adam Hall 
Our music was by Maisie Crunden, and we'd like to thank the rest of the team involved.